You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into inspiring stories on food, radical love, and creative social justice. American culture is fantastically individualistic, which can be a great thing when it comes to innovation and following your dreams. But when it comes to the health of people and their communities, the focus on individual responsibility for wellness seriously misses the mark. Many of the factors that impact health, such as poverty, stress, and pollution, are actually rooted in systemic problems created by centuries of policies and social norms that prioritize profit over people and white lives over black and brown lives. So when we tell people to just exercise more, eat better, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, we're putting all the responsibility for wellness on the individual, rather than a shared burden for change that also involves transforming the systems that lead to bad health in the first place. Today's guest, A-Life Allah, aka Absalom Massey, is trying to do something about this. In 2010, together with his co-editor, Supreme Understanding, he published the Hood Health Handbook, Volumes 1 and 2. Faced with the reality that black and brown people in America are several times more likely to die from health-related diseases than their white counterparts, these two saw that health solutions specific to communities of color were needed. Drawing on writings and practices from a large network of health practitioners, as well as hip-hop music and culture, Hood Health focuses on natural and affordable approaches to improving health in black and Latinx communities. A-Life grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, and our paths have crossed off and on since childhood. His journey into health justice work has been expanding over the past few years through becoming an environmental leader with Outdoor Afro, public speaking at the Yale School of Nursing, and starting the Hood Health podcast. A-Life is at a pivotal moment in his journey, stepping into his full passion in this work. I invited him here today to talk about Hood Health because as he says, it's important for people to hear directly from us versus someone who just writes a thesis on something they haven't actually experienced. Hello. Peace. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me through. Yeah. So I've known you since childhood, but um, there's a part of your story that I don't actually know very much about, which is what has led you into this work that you're doing now in your life. And I was wondering if we could start off by telling us a little bit about what inspired you to write Hood Health and to start doing this really active work on health in communities of color. It's an interesting question because I get asked it all the time and I kind of have to like revisit that point in time of my life. Um, I had asthma really bad growing up, really bad. I took a lot of medicines, inhalers, this nasty pink medicine that just even thinking about it, yeah, it's a problem. Um, yet I was still the fastest kid in the hood. Um, I would have an asthma attack, I have to go inside afterwards, but I didn't stop me from racing all the time. And when I got into high school, I wanted to run, do track. And someone mentioned something about if you cut dairy back, you know, your asthma will, you know, decrease. I was like, really? So I tried it and I got off of all medicine, asthma medicine, and I became all state. And um, at that time, I was like, wow, I wonder if I could hack my body in different ways. What would happen? So, you know, I, I that's why I started kind of experimenting with health things, different diets, different things like that. 
yet it wasn't probably until several years later that I took my personal reflections in terms of health, in terms of with me and looking at the community as a whole. And I started to look for things that spoke toward black and brown people in terms of health. And it really wasn't anything that was out there. And the stuff that was out there to me personally was a little too flaky for me. And it wasn't relating. You know, I was like, uh, it's either it was extra bougie type or just extra too much in that stratosphere. And um, I ran across a book by Dick Gregory, um, Cooking with Mother Nature, Another Nature, a Mother Nature. It's out of print now. And um, I lost my copy. So if anyone has a copy, would like to gift it to me, please send it my way. Um, but it was a great book because it was just down the earth, straight common sense almost you want to say elements in terms of how to deal with health and it made me realize that um you don't really have to do the whole phd talk with health to relate to people because the people who are sick all of them don't have phds you know and then i realized then it clicked it was like you grew up on hip-hop and you've been hearing all of these little gems come through hip-hop all of your life and then it was kind of just like an epiphany at that moment and wanted to bring it all together at that point. Mm. Yeah. So tell me a little about what what are some of the lyrics? Oh, well, you know, it's funny. When um when Brian Terry was here and we were talking, we both at the same moment realized a song that um was instrumental in terms of uh our own growth and development, which was Beef by Karis One. Mm-hmm. Um, which ironically is making rounds again on the internet, but Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan, who is vegan, is reciting the lyrics. Um, and so a lot of people have thinking, you know, from later generations, I think that he's the author, but it's actually Karis one. Um, and I can't recite the lyrics off the top of my head. But the key thing about the whole song was it wasn't just about don't eat beef. You'll feel better. It was about talking about the whole farming industrial complex. It was talking about you know, the, the um, chemicals that was put into beef. And this was like really the first time that I was getting this connection between that, you know, wait a minute, it's, it's larger than just your diet, mm-hmm. you know, that song. And then, um, you know, X-Clan has little lyrics, you know, living off the earth, eating herbs and fruits, little, little things were just thrown in there left and right. And then, uh, and as I took it larger, I realized that a lot of that, the environment by which, hip hop um, was birthed in is the same environment that I grew up in. And therefore a lot of the same issues that are talked about in hip hop, of course they would be about health because the, they come from the same environment in terms of racial health disparity that I come from. So making all those connections was just like, it was just incredible to Mm, me. Why is it so important to you? And why do you think it's important for the black community in terms of those those lyrics and those topics being addressed in hip hop versus like in health class at school or something like that? You know, I, I it's funny because at one point, you know, uh, Public Enemy, uh, actually Chuck D was talking about how, you know, black people need their own CNN. And especially now that we live in the time of, even though the growth of social media is immense, we also live in a time of a particular pushback in terms of fake news. You know, um, we live in a time in terms of where many of the media outlets 
we don't have control over. And therefore, hip hop has always been a way to, in terms of form of media, a form of getting news and information across. So it's important to take ownership of it and to continue to utilize ownership of it, mm-hmm. you know, to get those ideas out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So you have two volumes of your Hood Health handbook. You want to give people a little idea of the scope of the things that you're talking about in this handbook. It's huge. Yeah, um, it is. <laughs> it, it's, it's funny because it, it. I always tell people it ended up two volumes because we had so much information um, when we started writing and started collecting um, all this data that we wanted to get out there. And we didn't realize that, you know, at first, literally, it was I don't want to say it was going to be a little pamphlet, but it really was going to be a little pamphlet. Eat a little bit of this. You know, you might want to use a little of these herbs to do that. And then we started making the systematic connections to things. Mm-hmm. And so we were like, oh, no, we have to talk about the FDA. No, we have to talk about environmental racism. racism. Oh, no, we have to talk about um, women's health. Oh, no, we have to talk about mental health. And the more and more that we kept going, we realized that there wasn't any books out there that was bringing this all together at one place. And the Hood Health Handbook was actually only the, the place mark for the title that mm-hmm. it was supposed to be. But then we realized that that's what we wanted. We wanted it to be hood versus urban because the use of urban nowadays is utilized pretty much um, to erase black and brown people the same way, like in music, you know, like growing up, you had R and B, you had, you know, rap. And then all of a sudden mid nineties, they kind of changed. And it was like, Oh, urban music, you know, is that's kind of like extracting the, the, the cool factor without, addressing the labor that goes into the work itself. Um, and now you have things the same way it happens now and in, in, is happening in the, uh, the health industry too. You have, you know, all these urban type of uh, takes on things and you end up with weird iterations like goat yoga or something. And then I put urban, it's horrible, you know, so we decided to keep hood. We want hood there. We want so you're trying to be saying. explicit that this explicit. is for black and brown people. And, and generally the hood is exactly is that community. Mm-hmm. And the hood is indigenous, meaning that um, when you talk about the traditions of black and brown people, the core in terms of their traditions that links them throughout their lineage is preserved in the hood, you know, versus if you're going to upper middle class or, or, or upper class communities, even black and brown communities, they're preserved there. And we want to refocus that the answer or the solutions, we have to bring it back home. Like many times it's right in front of our face. It's mm-hmm. right there. You know, and we wanted to be a handbook also. We wanted to make sure that we weren't also just laying out all the problems. We wanted to make sure that we were also focused on solutions and making sure that people were focused on having that insight in terms of like, no, we, we're going to just not complain. We're not just going to fall into a rut of just rehashing, you know, our ills. Right. Well, one thing I love about it, so it's basically like a collection of articles and facts and it's kind of organized in all these different topics. And one thing that's really powerful about it is that you are, you're, it's a catalog of wisdom, right? And so what you're saying is that there, you are showing the wisdom and vibrancy that exists in the hood, right? So you're validating like that, that, that exists and it's like ancient wisdom and it's modern wisdom. And, and I think that that's really counter to this notion of like the hood is a place where there's poverty or that in order for people to get healthy, they need to have help from outside or, 
you know, that, that there's a lack of something. Well, there are lacks of certain things, right? For sure. And that's part of the problem, but there is also such rich richness and wisdom within it. And so I love that the the whole profound concept and, and accumulation of what's in these books is, is this wisdom from all these different people. It's not just you. Right. Who is your co? Oh, Supreme Understanding, who's, who's my co-editor. And we, we came up with the, the whole concept um, together while we were just figuring it out in terms of, like I said, the books that were out there um, at the time. And it's funny because I, at the time I was working at Barnes and Noble. So I seen all the, the books that were out there and I was like, Oh, this is not it. This mm-hmm. is not it. You know, there was a disconnect um, between the people who were outlining, even, even black and brown people who were outlining this um, instruction on healing they were either extra, extra bougie in terms of speaking down to the people that they were supposed to help, which to me is a totally direct turnoff. Um, and then also the, the notion that this one way is the only way to heal everything. And there's also from those particular books, there's lineages nowadays of people like that exist. And I have real for lack of a better term, I have beef with them. <laughs> um, I have issues with them. And then there was the other side, like I said, that was just very, very, um, what's the, I, I'm trying to think of the phrase that I would use for it. It's just too convoluted. It's just too many different, um, I want I, I want to say new agey. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in the hood, people weren't connecting with that. I, I saw right away, we saw right away that this wasn't going to work. And many times when people were even handing us articles, I was like, yeah, we can't use that because that actually makes no sense, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know, me and Supreme, Supreme grew up in, uh, in New Jersey, in the inner city, you know, and, and I grew up here. So we both really had the same outlook in terms of what we wanted to do and how we wanted to present it, you know? And like I said, it was, it was great that hip hop as, as a media form existed because we were just like, here it is, you know? This is how everything should be filtered, mm-hmm. you know, through. Yeah. So you were mentioning just where you grew up here in New Haven, Connecticut. And can you share a little bit about what your particular family life was like and, and some of the things I think your parents are really rooted in the church and how that is informing the way that you're working? Well, my father was a minister. Uh, my mother was a minister also, but she was also a, a elementary school teacher in the New Haven school system and Martin Luther King's elementary school, which doesn't exist anymore in the physical form, but we'll always be here. And this particular church that I grew up in, my mother and father and both sides of the family, actually on both sides, all my family on both sides belongs to this church um, that was founded in the early parts of last century. And my parents were older versus, you know, my peers. So my father was born in 1922 and my mother was born in 1935. So I all, so that was part of my growing up. Also, my parents were older um, and they're both from rural backgrounds. My father was born in Kentucky, literally in a log cabin, left his house at the age of 14 to go up north to get with his sisters who had moved to Ohio, Columbus, Ohio. So he went by himself. He left home and um, tells many stories about literally like getting off at the train station and going through like Ohio at that time was very, very heavily infiltrated. It's not even the word 
for it at the time because it was just literally the norm. Um, the Ku Klux Klan was heavy in, in Ohio at that time. Um, and my mother's family had uh, come from Arkansas in the 30s into Phoenix, Arizona. There was 14, my grandmother and her 13 siblings. So they all came from Arkansas into um, Phoenix. And I always thought that it was just because, you know, it was part of the, the great migrations that were happening at the time. And I literally just found out a few weeks ago that it was because they literally left in the middle of the night, packed up and got out of there because their land was being taken in um, Arkansas um, due to racial violence at the time. And they ended up being one of the first black families to settle in Phoenix and Phoenix at the time, there was a new strand of cotton that was being grown out there. So my family uh, grew up picking cotton, you know, sharecroppers, farmers all had this skill. So even if you weren't technically, you know, in slavery, as we envision it, you know, before the Civil War, they were still, you know, descendants of sharecroppers, sharecroppers and still held under that kind of economic bondage. So uh, both my, my mother and father both came from this rural background, both heavily within the church. And um, I grew up in New Hallville in New Haven. And from both of them doing their, their particular jobs, I, I inherited a deep sense of service. My father definitely was the type of uh, pastor who would be preaching literally in service on Sunday and then afterwards go next door to the watering, the watering hole that was in New Hallville at the time next to our church was called the mud hole. And he would talk to the, to, you know, all the guys out there, you know, drinking and playing dice and, and, and dominoes and everything. Um, my father always told me, he's like, you know, you might be better off than people, but you're never better than people, you know? Um, so, and my mother, you know, to this day, I still don't know the full extent in terms of the lives that she touched when she passed and at her funeral, the people that were coming them telling me all the things that she had done for them. It just like, you know, none of this was for former fashion. So this is what I inherited from them on that level. But I also inherited just a very, very close connection that I didn't realize until I started writing the Hood Health Handbook and, and realized that it wasn't everybody's experience, even in the black community in New Haven. Um, I was literally directly connected to a rural black tradition of healing. Um, and I didn't realize that until I was like, oh, y'all don't do that. Y'all don't, y'all don't put potatoes in your socks when you have a fever. Wait, y'all don't, you don't take that when you, and, and I realized that I had all this stuff in my head. Mm. And so part of that came out, you know, in the hood health handbook, ironically on, um, Instagram today, um, they're doing a ancestral wage challenge. And I did that last year where I was, I was one of the mentors and, um, one of my great, um, one of my people's down at El Paso, um, they're, they're setting it off. So we're doing that again, you know, and talking about, you know, traditional modes of healing and stuff that's been within our family. stuff. But all this kind of came together in weird pieces and it made me realize it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe this is what you should do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you grew up kind of learning these, was it different kinds of herbal remedies and just kind of family folk 
traditions that were, can you tell us a little more, like what kind of healing? Yeah, it's funny because when we moved to Newhallville, I always called the period of time that I grew up um, Martin's Children. Because the period that I grew up in was literally, I was born like right after like the civil rights movement and right before the era of crack. So that period of time is real interesting from a media standpoint, because on the surface, it appears like, yo, we really, really made it. Like we really, really are going to move forward progressively in terms of dealing with, you know, all the different ethnic groups and how we're going to work together. I remember growing up and even looking back at cartoons at the time, you know, and Sesame Street and stuff like that, like all those things were very, very diverse. Yet on the other flip side of that, when you when I got older, I realized that also COINTELPRO was in full effect. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of the uh groups such as Black Panthers, you know, the Young Lords stuff, like they were literally being attacked and being dismantled. You know? Um, so this period of time though that I grew up in New Hallville, it was it, I always tell people it was beautiful to me. All the families there were many of the families there had gardens in their backyards. Um, I grew up, you know, with my mother getting grapes from across the street and making jelly, mm-hmm. you know, making homemade ice cream, you know, and we're not talking, you know, middle class, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, lower middle class, you know, lower class, but, all these resources were there um, in terms of folk remedies and things like that. You know, when it came time for the change in seasons, and I, to this day, I'm not even sure everything she gave us, but you know, you had to clean out the body. You were giving kind of like a, a um, different herbs to, to, to flush out the body to prepare for, you know, the, uh, the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, also in terms of what we ate during the winter time, the fall and winter was definitely different than what we ate during the summertime. So the soups and stews that we ate. Um, like I said, we had a garden. We were getting freaking fresh vegetables out of our backyard. So this is all before you, I hear talk of like organic gardening and all these kind of things. It's like, nah, we were doing it, you know? And then something or some many things happened to make it so that those things were starting to be removed from the whole landscape, you know? And New Hallville is kind of different versus other neighborhoods in New Haven, you know, because in, in New Hallville, um, you know, there are homes with backyards and stuff like that versus, you know, um, different projects at the time who wouldn't have the same setup. Right. You know. Yeah. So jump forward into today. You have the landscape, as you're saying, of, of food and community and economics has, has changed pretty drastically from, from that time. How are you looking at the work that you're doing and the work that needs to be done and looking at the systemic change that needs to happen? You mentioned like environmental racism. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, just the change of, of the food system. How are you talking about and thinking about that kind of systemic change? Um, a lot of my work is informed because um, I'm, I'm a sci-fi head. I love science fiction um, to this point. It's interesting now because I'm at this point in my life where now I look at Afrofuturistic kind of outlooks and I refer to a lot of the things that I, 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 I do as ancient futuristic technologies. And I say all that to say this is that where we are right now, the key to get it out, to get out of it is to envision the future that we want to live in. And many times 
that's hard for people to make that click. So the first thing in terms of the work I do is I make sure that people understand that we're dealing with systems that, you know, Joe around the corner doesn't want to be sick. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's not just Joe's fault alone that everything has led him to this point in terms of whatever different ailments that he may be dealing with. So we have to deal with systems. We have to deal with way to dismantle systems that we have to deal with way to re-envision systems, you know, and with many of the groups and many people that I've been um, in contact with, they have just added on more layers of dimension in terms of my education um, about those things. Like when I first started this work, I was, I was the dude who would always say food deserts, food swamps, food oasis, mm-hmm. you know, that I went through my immersion at Soul Fire Farm, my black Latinx, you know, farm immersion. And I, you know, I was introduced to the term, you know, food apartheid and it clicked, <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, that's just, all those things are natural. This junk is not natural. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the point there is that food apartheid is, is a the word apartheid is saying that this is a human created problem exactly. versus using a word like desert or oasis or swamp or natural phenomenon and there's nothing natural right about about the food inequities and and health problems that are going on and then also it be, it when you utilize that terminology such as food deserts and things like that you also are skewing an actual even understanding of nature in and of itself a desert is a natural phenomenon. So you start to look at this is just natural. Right. You know, the hood is supposed to be like this, you know, and it's like, no, it was actually set up this way. And it's an extension of the larger paradigm of, of, of white supremacy inequity. It's all connected. You know? So if you're talking to Joe around the corner, who's sick, what are you going to say to him to help him understand how, this isn't just on him as an individual. Nine times out of 10, the first thing that I, the first way that I'm able to make inroads with anybody is to give them some of my food because I cook pretty good. Um, <laughs> and that's the first thing always. Like it's simple things. It's just like nine times out of 10, I'm not going to get into a lecture that I would give in a college with Joe. Right. You know, I'm going to, I'm eating something, I'm offering him something, he's going to taste it, he's going to love it, and then he's going to want more. You know, and then while we're talking about other things, um, I'll slip in things. Things in the hood, like there's a uh, particular uh, tonic, which is popular in some at some branches of the black community, which is called shibuchi. And it's, um, it's a Chinese herbal tonic. Um, and... It has an interesting history of why it's even big in the black community because it uh, made its way into the black community be through Chinese Muslims. And they were also primarily also the practitioners of particular forms of Kung Fu during the 60s and the 70s. They made that branch with um, different groups of uh, black Muslims. And we ended up drinking shibuchi. It gives you a little buzz, but it's also, as a tonic, it's really good for, like, your reproductive area. If I'm drinking shibuchi, I'm just going to mention it to Joe, and I'm going to mention the other benefits of it. Next thing you know, which is an actual truth, 
is one of the barbershops um, we're drinking Shibuchi at. You mentioned a couple of brothers in terms of how it would help them versus Viagra. Um, Viagra. Next thing you know, the barber is buying Shibuchi wholesale and selling it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same reason why if you go in corner stores, um, many times ginseng, he had the little ginsengs mm-hmm. with, the, with the little straw and stuff. Those kind of little things. And then once they're doing that ginseng from there, then you can expand it. Then you can take them to the actual tea. Then you can actually take them to the actual leaf. Then you can expand and talk to them about different herbs. Then you can point out that, hey, wait, there's an herbal store right down here. I mean, there's a uh, a health food store, Edge of the Woods right here. Maybe you want to, I could, let's take a walk on this top level here, you know? And it's just the little things. It's yeah. not the hitting over the head. Right. You know? Well, I mean, I think the real, what you're talking about when you're working in a, in community and with your community is building relationship and that like that trust and meeting people where they're at and like finding these little windows to open into new information is like that's right. how change really happens mm-hmm. there it's interesting as i'm listening to him thinking about how those little practical things then can enter into this conversation about how you value yourself and the importance of transforming your life and valuing your health mm-hmm. as as a way to kind of um fight back as a way to to show your self-worth as a way to say like i matter in a in a country that constantly tells you you don't matter as a black person um or as a muslim person or as a person of color or any number of other things but um that health our health is so connected to how we feel about ourselves and how we're viewed Mm -hmm. in, in our communities so it's interesting because that's the next level that when I have particular larger talks and stuff that I can get into, then I can use the hip hop bravado, you know, speaking about health. It's like, yo, they don't want you to be healthy. So what you're going to do, you're going to be healthy. Right. You know, like then you bring it there and then you make it personal. Like you said, you make it personal and then it's an ownership of your own health at that point. And once you have an ownership of your own health, then of course you're going to figure out ways that you want to increase your health, you know, and then that will lead you many times to the topics that I end up talking about, you know, the larger systematic things. You're like, wait a minute, like, oh, this is happening. This right. is happening. You know? So can we talk a minute about the demonization of soul food? Cause I know this is something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one of my, so big, tell me it's funny because one of the first articles is actually in the first volume of the hood health handbook I wrote is, is on, um, is on soul food. Um, which many times I like to refer to as soil food or soul food, S-O-L, um, to give the different dimensions of it. Many, and it's interesting because even within the black community, for many for many of the quote unquote health practitioners, soul food is the say all, end all root of all sickness in the black community. And I'm like, nah, um, for many reasons. One is because soul food, as it is presented today, is not the soul food that we directly connect from our ancestors who were enslaved. It's gone through many different changes, many different phases. Um, Many things got edited out, added to it. Um, Our ancestors were not eating fried foods three times a day. They just weren't. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Um, If anyone, you know just casually studies enslavement, you understand that that would be an impossibility, you know, um, to our, our ancestors also compared to the sedentary culture that we're in today in terms of not moving around a lot. 
they were a lot more physically active than we were, you know. Um, also, soul food, even as a terminology, is a branding that happened in the 60s. You know, so it's a marketing ploy. You know, I always tell, and, and this is something that uh, I hold close to my heart, like I said, because I come directly from, even though I grew up in the city, like I said, my mother and father come from rural tradition. I was like, oh no, you want to talk about real soul food? You ain't talking about eating possum. You know, you ain't talking about eating raccoon or squirrel. You know, so if you're not talking about that, then then what what is really soul food? You know, and there's a lot of things that get uh, mixed in with soul food that are actually issues of the standard American diet. You know, um, we were talking about the other day in terms of, you know, some of the particular areas that we grew up in in New Haven that didn't have hardly any fast food places. You know, now literally almost every strip you can't go without bumping into a fast food place. Right. You know, that's not soul food. You know what I'm saying? McDonald's and Burger King and and, and Wendy's and all those that's not soul food. So people aren't even eating soul food nowadays. We have big we had a big dinner on Sunday. That's what we had, a big dinner on Sunday. And even traditionally, historically, um, in different periods of American history, meat wasn't available heavy like that. So we weren't eating fried chicken every single day. We weren't eating bacon and ham every single day because it wasn't available. My father would literally tell you when he grew up, especially during Depression times, like, yeah, we got like meat like once a week, you know, and then the meat. Other meat was just used like to the flavor things, you know, and the, and the pot liquor and all this kind of stuff. So soul food is demonized for the same reason that pretty much anti-blackness exists. You know, it's just like, oh, this is something else that you guys are doing that's harming yourself and it's your fault. And you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and yada, yada. It's all within that same framework. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because other people's even other people of color who come to the United States and eat their traditional food and eat their traditional foods in excess many times will have some of the same issues that you have if you overindulge in soul food yet it's not demonized you know in the same manner yeah absolutely I want to ask you more about that but I also am mindful of our time Mm -hmm. um can we talk for a second about getting outside so you started you started this thing called doing it in the park yeah and i know you also participated in the outdoor afro Mm -hmm. program and some other things can you talk about as a black person in a city getting people outside and what why is that important to you yeah it's important for me because that's how i grew up dating myself you know we're talking about the pre-personal video game generation you know pre Atari came out when I was little and you had to be rich to have Atari one guy on my street had Atari we would all be up in his living room so we were outside all the time literally and you know I grew up with you know that kind of black mother which is like you're not going to be going in and outside the house you know you either going to go outside you're going to stay inside so we literally were out all day and it was okay you know because we were playing um, so many games that have been lost right now in time um street games you know and that's part of my you know do it in the park series you know i 
basically reintroduce these street games to to children everything from hopscotch you know to marbles things like that that didn't take you know a lot of money and a lot of imagination and you just go in and so i i realized as i got older like i was outside a lot you know and then i realized i wasn't outside of a lot but then i also realized that a lot of i guess in high school i realized that a lot of my peers who were white were having an experience of camping going you know on larger vacations to places like yellowstone and national parks and stuff like that that wasn't part of my experience and as i got to this phase i realized like how important that was i realized that when i was younger i wanted to be a boy scout i wanted to camp i wanted to get merit badges and stuff there was no troop in my neighborhood um and so a few years after we did the hood elf handbook i it was kind of calling me you know it was i uh i applied to be a a leader for outdoor afro at the time in 2016 from my area connecticut and they had training at yellowstone park and i i, I was in mountains you know it, it it i was i was overwhelmed mm. you know and i realized also that there is a whole big chunk of history and for lack of a better term trauma that is related to the black body in outdoor spaces um which is related to the black body in white spaces and so all that was it was all started to click to me and i realized that there had to in the in the next level in terms of hood health I had to deal with dealing with what I call, you know, or is popularly referred to as radical self-care dealing with historical trauma, you know, and, and figuring out ways to take up space in those spaces where there has been violence against the black body. And, um, it's still a journey with that right now in terms of figuring out how to take up space in places where you know you're, you're not welcome or you're not supposed to be welcome because we have we have we have a weird kind of twofold relationship with the outdoors on one hand you know it's a place where tremendous violence has been done against the black body in terms of lynching and and violence against black people but then also on the other hand you know when you're dealing with those who were enslaved who ran away and formed maroon colonies and things like that and also places in terms of where we grew our herbs and grew our foods and stuff like that became also a way a place for our escape also so it's it's interesting figuring out that kind of twofold side of it but it's important to figure to to really acknowledge that there is trauma and that yeah we 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 got to take up space because it's just death the other way, literally. So when you're trying to get people out into nature and they have some sort of trauma response or they feel like this isn't a place for me as a black person or as a person of color, um, how do you, what are some of the things you do to try to both address that trauma and help people feel the positive effects of being out in nature? It's interesting because that happens so frequently that I didn't at first I didn't think it was going to be um, that heavy response from people 
but people do not want to be in the woods after dark. You know, um, it's important for me to build a sense of, of community and to let people know that they're not alone um, and to deal with basic responses, which is, you know, when we're dealing with heightened emotions, our emotions are, are inflamed, you know, to get back to the root of the breath, you know, and breathing is, is, is just so important. And it's also important from a hip hop standpoint, because your greatest MCs always have breath control. You know, and so it's important to learn how to breathe. It's important to be present. It's important to to understand, you know, that what you're going through at that particular moment is important. And it's amazing how they those seem to be simple things. But those are also simple things that aren't that aren't affirmed with people like people, people's um, fears and 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 notions of self-worth and, and, and all those things are not affirmed. It's kind of just like deal with it. And that's once again, part of the larger narrative in terms of just like, we'll just, just deal with it because that for many has been how they've gotten through particular in the, even within their family, how they've gotten through particular periods in, in history of, you know, the United States. Right. I mean, that message is telling people just like squish it down, pull mm-hmm. it together and move on. Yep. And at some point that wound festers and comes up. And so what you're saying is like, we need to deal with this Mm -hmm. in a way that helps to heal it and resolve it. Not Mm -hmm. just like squishing it down, which is a a big thing. Um, So you yourself are in this transitional point in your life right now. You're taking a leap into really following your heart's passion and this work with hood health. And I know this is just the the starting point of it for you, but can you talk about like what you're, what are you hoping to come out of this? What What's your dream? Wow. It's interesting. Sometimes, you know, you don't reflect on things like that, you know, in terms of the larger, larger scope, you yeah. know, sometimes it's important also to take the moment to just to kind of like think about it. My, where I'm, where I'm working to push myself to and, and to get to is one to make sure that those parts of the communities that I'm a part of receives the treatments that they need. Um, whether we're dealing with historical trauma, whether we're dealing with present day trauma, and to make sure that I have the skill set to address those. And so that's part of what I'm doing right now is that I'm doing um, a hood health expansive training for myself, uh, which involves uh basically setting myself up as a student to learn, you know, herbalism, uh, yoga, uh, acupuncture, acupressure, um, and any other modalities of healing that I feel can be utilized for, you know, marginalized people right now. Um, I'm also adding to that whole notion in terms of moving myself around, um, the whole notion of that I have to be rooted in one spot, um, kind of taking that out of my whole view mm-hmm. um, and just going totally without the comfort zone and just going into it. Um, and then also, of course, continuing my work, pushing with hood health in terms of uh, the body of workshops and talks that I have, you know, on all levels. You know, the last couple of years I've been um, fortunate enough to to be able to speak at medical schools and, and nursing schools. And I'm going to continue to push the envelope to get to 
community groups and schools and things of that nature because they need to hear from us, you know, versus someone who necessarily just writes a thesis on something that they haven't experienced, you know? Yeah, it's super important. Well, I fully support you in this and I feel really honored to catch you in this moment where you're in the transition of developing all this work even more and committing yourself to it. And I thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. So if people want to support you, you have a GoFundMe campaign right now, right? Yes. How can they find that? The website is thishoodhealth.com and everything Hood Health, you know, you'll find there. You'll find Hood Health mixtapes. You'll find uh, articles there. You'll find video there. All right. And people can check you out on Instagram, Facebook, and then you also have a Spotify playlist. So if people want to check out some of your older podcasts are up there and you're going to be launching out some new podcasts, right? right. Tell us about that. Yeah. So we're going to be launching, relaunching the Hood Health podcast and we're going to actually be doing it by Colsto. I have a co-host who is it from the Bay Area and she's a yoga teacher. She's also Salvadorian and she does a lot of work in terms of applying, you know, yoga to the people. So we're going to build it up. We're going to be hood health from coast to coast. Excellent. So people can find you on Spotify and on your website. Yes. Thank you so much, A-Life. Thank you. You can find more info about this show and much more at thetableunderground.com. Listen in wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on all the social medias, and if you like what you hear, please tell a friend and write a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'm Tegan Engel, and this is The Table Underground. You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio, broadcasting from New Haven, Connecticut.